On June 24th, 2021, uh, Champlain Towers South, it was a 13-story oceanfront uh, residential building in Florida, partially collapsed. Perhaps you remember that. And as a result of that, 98 uh, people lost their lives. The investigation of what caused that collapse is even going on today. And there are a number of different theories that are being purported, being suggested. Uh, three years prior to the collapse, it was noted that the uh, swimming pool was leaking and was seemed to be eroding some of the foundation. As they continued their research, they realized that uh, a lot of the metal rebar uh, was, had been rusting in the plaza and that slab. And so there's a question as to whether or not that might have contributed as well. As I said, the analysis continues. So the questions are asked, what caused the structure failure? Because we want to know what caused that so that we might prevent that from happening in other situations. In fact, uh, probably within the last six, seven months, there was another tower that was shut down in Florida, a residential tower, because as they were doing the inspections, they were play, uh, playing, paying closer uh, heed to the fact that there were some things that weren't right, and so they evacuated that building. So the question is asked, what is it that caused the compromise of this building? Over, over 40 years, the building had stood, so why all of a sudden the partial collapse? What was it that caused this situation to suddenly appear when it didn't appear that there was any other problem? Well, this morning we come to one of the well-known well uh, stories in David's life, and frankly, it's a tragic story. It's going to follow him the rest of his life. It's going to impact his family. It's going to impact the nation of Israel. In fact, all of the major crises that David will now face in his life from this point on for the next 20 years are tied to this event. Don't misunderstand. I'm not saying there isn't any forgiveness that God grants to us, but there are consequences for the disaster of disobedience. But we need to also understand this collapse in David's moral life didn't just happen overnight. We tend to think that that's what happens in personal moral failure, that suddenly something goes wrong without any warning. But it doesn't work that way. There are serious moral failures that occur, and it isn't normally as a result of a sudden impulse. It's been little compromises Small disobediences over time that ultimately lead to a significant moral failure. Another really sobering thought as we look at this particular passage is that this didn't happen when David was a teenager. It happened when David was about 50 years of age. He had walked with God for many, many years. And so that becomes a warning to us because we have this tendency to think that over the long period of time it will build up immunity. But that's not the case. So it's a warning to every single one of us who are followers of Jesus. If it happened to David, it can happen to you and me. In 2 Samuel chapters 5-10, through 10, which we have come through, those are the golden years of David and his life and of Israel. God had chosen David to be king over Israel. Uh, he was victorious. The country was unified politically. They were successful economically. They were successfully. Uh, they had been at peace. 
And then this tragic event happens. And so there are lessons for us to learn. And so I invite you to grab a Bible, turn to 2 Samuel uh, chapter 11. We'll be looking together at verses 1 through 27. 2 Samuel 11, verses 1 through 27. Verses 1 through 5 give to us the disastrous decision. And we begin in, by the way, if you want to follow along in a, in a Bible that's in a chair rack in front of you, it's page 327, page 327. So beginning in verse 1, then it happened. Those are ominous words. Then it happened. If you were seeing this on a movie screen, you would hear uh, the music would be in the minor chord. You could tell something bad was about to occur. Then it happened. Then it happened in the spring at the time when the kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel and they, uh, that they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. If you recall chapter 10, there's this battle is continuing on with the Ammonites. They broke for winter. They don't fight in winter. It's cold. It's rainy. It's wet. All of those things are taking place. And so here in its spring is when the kings go out to battle. You know, this is, this is time to go out and have warfare. And so we, we read that it's in this time when the kings go out to battle that David stayed in Jerusalem. Now, we're not sure how much to read into that because in chapter 10, David stayed back in Jerusalem while Joab was out fighting battle. And then he went a little bit later. But the text seems to put some emphasis on that, right? The kings go out to battle and David stayed in Jerusalem. So it seems to give this implication that David should have gone. He should have been there with the troops. He should have been involved in battle. Uh, That it's an idle time and those are dangerous times. Someone has said that idleness is the devil's workshop. And idleness is not the same as rest. We need rest at different times in our life. And so we, we, we read that, that, that this idleness is set in, that David should have gone perhaps, but he, but he stayed. He stayed. And then in verse 2, we read this, And now when evening came, David arose from his bed, walked on the roof of the king's house, and from, one, uh, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. David, and it's gotten cool, they... they they take naps and so on. If you're in the Middle East, you remember that. You know, they've got siestas because it gets hot, humid, those kinds of things. And so David had perhaps been taking a nap. And, and he gets up in the cool of the evening. He's walking back and forth on, on a roof. Uh, their roofs were flat. Uh, and there was often a chamber that was on top of that. So that's probably what David is doing here. And as he looks down, he, he sees this woman who's uh, bathing. Uh, again, you know, is. We don't want to read too much into the text. Some have suggested that it was Bathsheba's fault. We're going to find her name because she should have known that she could be seen. But the text doesn't imply that. In fact, all the way through here, God calls on David and holds David accountable to what's taking place. She may not have been aware of that fact that she could be seen from the king's roof. I do do want to kind of wander a little path here that I think is important for us. 
as followers of Jesus, and that is that modesty is an important piece. We don't hear too much about that anymore. That sounds like an old archaic word that you, you know, King James kind of word from back in the 1600s, and yet the Bible does emphasize modesty. Again, I'm not saying that Bathsheba determined to, to violate that principle. I got involved with an online conversation and I finally bowed out because I was making no progress whatsoever. But the idea was that, you know, our, 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 our girls, our daughters ought to be able to dress however they want. And, and if the guys have a problem, it's their problem. And when you look at, we just recently went through on Wednesday night in Isaiah where God holds the women accountable for dressing seductively. That there is something to be said for that. And then we get into Proverbs where it warns uh, a young man about looking at a woman who's dressing as a prostitute. And so why would we want our daughters to dress as prostitutes? You see, there's a reason prostitutes dress the way they do, right? Is that correct or not? So, so why do we want our daughters to dress that way? Again, we, that doesn't give any license or liberty to men. I'm not suggesting that whatsoever. But there is biblical principles about modesty. But the problem here is David looks, the first look is not wrong. It, you know, temptation is not sin. Jesus himself was tempted. It was that longing look that he took. And so then he likes what he sees. But the problem, the problem is a state of the heart and not the object. It's what was inside of him that was the problem, not what he was seeing that, was the, that, that created the tension. How many of you honestly, you know, you hear these stories about celebrities and, and athletes, right? Who are married to these gorgeous women and you see them and, and all of a sudden you hear about the adulterous relationships they're having and you're thinking, why? The problem is in the heart, it's not in the object. You see, it's a heart problem. And so David, at this time in his life, in verse 3, he wants to find out more information. What God has called sin, don't go looking to say, well, I wonder, just wonder. Wonder what it would be like. And so in verse 3, and so David sent and inquired about the woman and said, and they, this is the response. This is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Whoever brings the message back, I don't know if there are veiled red flags and warning signs in there. Eliam. That was one of David's trusted soldiers. This is his daughter. This is the granddaughter, though it isn't in this text, we'll find it later. This is the granddaughter of Ahithophel, who was a close counselor of David. And in case you missed it, David, that's Uriah's wife. She's already married. She's off limits. They're red flags. But David goes blasting right through those red flags. And so then we read in verse 4, And David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from from uncleanness, she returns back home. I 
Again, there's a, there's a discrepancy here. Uh, was it consensual or was it non-consensual? And frankly, I lean more to the non-consensual side. She, Bathsheba may have had no idea what David wanted, although probably seems a little strange that he's asking for her, but, but her husband is out in battle, and so she went, and I don't think she knew what was going to be taking place. I realize it does take, as they say, two to tango, but I don't know that it was consensual from her side. Because again, David, God holds David accountable for this situation. And there's some, the verbs that are used and the words that are used are very short and cryptic. He sees. Verse 2, he sends. Verse 3, he takes. Verse 4, he lays. Verse 4. And then we read in verse 5, And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, and said, I'm pregnant. Oh, there's panic. There's panic. You see, her husband, as I mentioned, is one of the godly soldiers of David, one of the mighty men of David, and he's out fighting a battle. And the wife is pregnant. Now, now I don't think you keep that a secret within the palace. You see, there were messengers that were sent, or at least a messenger that was sent to get her. The palace people would have seen at least a few of them that, that this woman Bathsheba was in their presence. And then it gets known that something has happened. Now David's trying to keep the lid on this thing as much as possible. He's got, he's got two options now. One is confession or the other is cover-up. Either we take it at this point and say, I, I need to confess before God what I've done and to Uriah, or I'm going to attempt to cover it up. And unfortunately, he takes number two, which frankly, if we're honest, most of us would probably choose that as well. And so he comes up with some schemes. I, it's a little stronger word than plans. And the first scheme he has, we find in verse 6 down through verse 13. So David sends for Uriah, verse 6, he tells Joab, by the way, Joab is a very conniving man. He is the general of the army. He is very street smart. Joab can probably figure out what's going on here. Joab is really only concerned about Joab. If you remember some of the story that we have already read about Joab in 1 Samuel and in 2 Samuel, the one that Joab is concerned about is Joab. So David sends to Joab his uh, general, and he says, I want you to send Uriah home because here's the plan. If I can get Uriah home, he'll go home and sleep with his wife, and then they'll, they'll have this, this child. They'll think the child belongs to them. Uh, Uriah, well, Bathsheba will know. David will know, and maybe some others will know. But if we can keep the lid on this thing, there's no DNA testing. So they'll never know. And so he calls for Uriah to come back. Uriah comes back from the front. David in verse 8 says to, to Uriah, he asks Uriah about what's going on in battle. That's just merely a diversion. And so in verse 8, he says, uh, David says to Uriah, go down to your house, wash your feet. That means get yourself comfortable. 
And Uriah went down, uh, went from the king's house and, the, uh, and from the presence of the king. Uh, the king sent him some presents. It's like, you know, take these presents to your wife. You go make yourself comfortable. Have a great night. Hopefully, you know, he probably had some candles and some aromatic stuff. You know, we're going to make this a night of romance and it's all there. It's a gift. You know, David's setting this thing up. But Uriah doesn't play the game. Verse 9. Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of, a, of his lord and did not go down to his house. And it's told David, verse 10, Uriah didn't go down to his house. And David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why didn't you go down to your house? <laughs> What's wrong with you? You've been out on the battlefield. You have a beautiful wife. Here are gifts I gave you. Plan a romantic night and... And you don't go down and sleep with your wife. Why didn't you go? Verse 11, And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters, and my lord Joab and the servants of the Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? But by your life and the life of your soul, I'm not going to do this thing. There's a man who has integrity. In fact, he starts off with, this is the ark of the Lord. Uriah was a Hittite. He was a proselyte. He came into the Jewish nation. He was brought in, but apparently he honors the one true God of Israel. He is a follower of that God. God's ark, the representation of God's presence, is out on a battlefield. It's not right for me to be in my house. Not only that, my soldiers, the one that I'm with, they're out on the battlefield. I don't deserve this peace. I'm, I'm a man of integrity. I'm not going to do this thing. So we find out that Uriah is this man of integrity and duty and character. And so David says, I, I, I've got a, a second piece to this scheme number one. And you find it in verse, 11, uh, verse 12. David said to Uriah, stay here today also and tomorrow. Then I'm going to let you go back. In two days you get to go back. So he, he, bring, he calls for Uriah. Verse 13, David called and he ate and drank before him. He made him drunk. And in that evening he went out to lie on his bed with his Lord's servants. But he did not go down to his house. The idea David think, if I can just get him drunk. He won't know what he's doing and he'll go back home. Someone has pointed out, tragically, that Uriah had more character and integrity drunk than David did being sober. Uriah says, I, I, I still can't go. This isn't right. And so David has failed in his scheme number one. So David has to determine a second scheme. And I call this scheme the final solution. And I don't use that term lightly. Some of you may recall that is a term that comes out of Nazi Germany. When Hitler determined that his final solution to the Jewish problem because he was anti-Semitic. And the Jews, as he would say, and they are not, but that was his, the problems we have here are all on the race of the Jews. We have economic problems. We have the issues around us. It's because of the Jewish people. And so his final solution is we're going to eradicate them and hence the gas chambers. And in essence, that's what David is doing in this particular scheme. 
And so he devises a plan, and we read about it in verse 14. It came about in the morning. David wrote a letter to Joab, sent it by Uriah's hand. And he had written in this letter saying, Place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle, withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. Uriah is carrying his own death warrant with him. Joab, I want you to put him at the very front of the battle, and when it gets really intense, everybody pull back, but don't let anybody else hear, and leave Uriah standing there all by himself. He's going, to, he's going to be struck down. Again, Joab is shrewd. He knows there's something going on. Again, a little bit of history reminds us of what happened to Rommel, that desert fox, Second World War. He he was a tank commander down in Egypt, did tremendous work. And then toward at the end of, uh, in 1944, Hitler was beginning to lose battles. And, and there were some coups against Hitler and some attempts to take Hitler's life. And, and Rommel was uh, associated with one of those. And so they called Rommel back to, uh, to Germany. And two individuals showed up to Rommel and said, here's the deal. We hear that you have been part of this coup to to eliminate Hitler. So here's the plan. We've got some poison here. We're going to take two generals. We're going to drive you out of town. You drink this poison within 15 minutes, you're dead. We'll contact your wife and tell her that you had this brain aneurysm because Rommel was a great general. He he was seen as, as someone who had been very, very successful, so you just can't eliminate him. And so we'll call your wife, Frau Rommel, and tell her that you had this brain aneurysm, and we'll give you a military burial and all of the honors, and and she'll be put on the payroll. And that's what he did. He took his own life. It was a plan to eliminate him, pretty much like what we see here. So the plan is carried out. You see it in verse 16. So... So it was as Job kept watch on the city and, and that Uriah was at the place where he knew there would be valiant men. Why? Because Uriah is a valiant man. And the men of the city went out and fought against Joab and some of the people among David's servants fell and Uriah the Hittite also died. And then Job sends back the report and says um, to David all this uh, regarding the, the events of the war. They're going to give a, a uh, casualty report. And so the charge the messenger say, when you have finished telling all of the events of the war to the king, and it happens that the king's wrath rises, and he says to you, why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot down from the wall? Who struck down Abimelech, the son of Jerubusheth? Did not the woman throw a, a millstone on him and kill him? And that's, that's from Judges. In other words, you should learn some things from military history. Uh, this, this individual, Abimelech, had gotten really close to this tower, and this woman drops a uh, millstone, crushes his head. That's the end of the story. And so, you know, David is, could be concerned. In fact, he was. I think David was concerned about the loss of life. He was concerned about his men. Just not Uriah. And, and so... When, when David says, man, didn't you remember from your days in military academy that you don't get close to a wall because that's where disaster is? And just tell him, oh, by the way, Uriah's dead too. And David could see what is taking place. And so in verse 22, so the messengers departed, came to David, all that Joab had sent and told him. And the messenger said to David, the men prevailed against us. They were winning, uh, but... We press them very hard. Verse 24, archers shot your servants from the wall, so the king's servants are dead. 
And the servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. And David said to the messenger, thus you shall say, don't let this thing displease you. That's tough, but bad things happen in battle. For the sword devours one as well as another. Make a battle against the city stronger. Take it, overthrow it. In verse 26, Uriah, the wife, uh, uh, excuse me, Bathsheba, or just the wife of Uriah. It's interesting. This person who's telling the story keeps reminding us that this is the wife of Uriah. The wife of Uriah, verse 26, the wife of Uriah understood that her husband was dead and she mourned for her husband. I suspect David did something very, very similar. We're going to have military honors for this man who died in battle, valiant warrior. He's going to put on that facade that I really cared about Uriah. It's just such a tragedy. He's going to comfort uh, Uriah's wife. And it looks like, it looks like the scheme has been successful. It looks like the final solution was successful. This, but was it? Look at the last phrase of verse 27. The first part of verse 27 says, David, after the morning, he takes... He takes Bathsheba to be his wife, and so he's covered it up. It's probably at least a, at least a month, maybe six weeks later than the event. And it looks like he's won, but notice. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. This is the first time in this chapter that God is mentioned. You know, dear friends, it's really important for us to understand that the silence of God does not indicate the absence of God. Just because we don't hear God, and that can be on the good times and the bad times. You might be going through some really difficult times that that are no reason that you've caused, and you might think that God is silent, but, but that doesn't mean that God is absent. But neither does it mean that when we're walking through life and we are making choices that are against God's principles and precepts. And God doesn't rein us in that somehow God is, uh, God is absent. No, his silence does not indicate the absence of God. This really is the punchline to the whole story. The evil that David did, God saw. There are some lessons, I think, that are important for all of us to learn in this story. And I think, first of all, before we even get into those lessons, it's important for us to understand that the principles and precepts that God gives us in the Bible are not to be given to us in order to make our lives difficult. God doesn't do it in order to say, man, you're having some fun down there. I don't want you to have any fun, so cut it out. I'm going to give you a bunch of rules, like Ten Commandments, so that you can't have any fun. That's not what God is doing. God is giving to us principles and precepts so that we might flourish in our life. They're the guardrails that God gives to us from going off the cliff. Because, dear friends, if we listen to the world around us, they just kind of come and go, and we're not really sure where the guardrails are if they aren't even there. And so there are some lessons for us to learn. And first of all, 
it demonstrates that no follower of Jesus is beyond catastrophic fall. There is not one of us in this room who's a follower of Jesus can make the statement, that'll never happen to me. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, it says, it says this, Take heed, pay attention, lest you fall. Pay attention, lest you fall. Adrian Rogers, who is able to take a, a phrase and really twist it in a really good way, is now with Jesus. But, you know, we look at, we look at well-known Christians, people who are, who are known in the Christian world. They, they have ministries. They are pastors. They are whatever. And, and all of a sudden we read about a moral failure. We read about a tragedy. We read about the fact that they were living a double life, something similar to what's going on with David. And there's this tendency to say, my, how far they've fallen And Adrian Rogers would say, no, no, we don't know how low they were living. You see, we can put on a facade. I can play the game. You can play the game. But what's down in the heart? And that's the problem with David. It was a heart issue. It wasn't the object out there. It was a heart. It was a heart issue. So it demonstrates None of us take up chapter 11 of 2 Samuel and say, well, you know, what a wicked guy. I mean, yes, it was tragic, it, but there are lessons for us to learn. Secondly, the importance of connection with God. Jesus in Matthew chapter 26, verse 41, tells us and challenges his disciples. He says, I want you to do this. They're in a garden of Gethsemane getting ready. And Jesus said, I want you to watch and pray so that, what's the rest of the phrase? You don't enter into temptation. Good answer. Watch and pray so that you don't enter into temptation. You see, what I find in in, in my life is that the more time I am in watching and praying, the less of a temptation that situation is. And it's when I'm not watching and praying, the greater that temptation is. Again, temptation in and of itself is not sin. But it's what do we do with that? Do we linger over it? Do we imagine what might be? And so we also learn that omission precedes commission. We've talked about this issue of the heart. And we watch and we see, you know, I spend less time with God. I spend less time with God's people on a Sunday morning. I don't come and worship. And when those things are hidden in the heart, it becomes easier and easier to stay away because otherwise God's word is convicting and songs that we sing are convicting and, and walking with other individuals are convicting. Dietrich Bonhoeffer made the statement, he said, you know, it isn't that, God fi- that, uh, that, that Satan fills our hearts with hate for God. He just makes us forgetful of God. And that's so true. When we come to that place where we kind of ignore who God is and we push God to the periphery and we're not too interested in those kinds of things. It's not that we hate God, we just become forgetful. And I think another thing we learn as we look at this, I mentioned to you that this isn't something that just happened overnight. It wasn't just a a one-time deal. 
As we look at the life of David and we, we track it, we notice the early chapters of 2 Samuel, David began to compromise. God had said in his, in his word that it's one man, one woman are to be married for life unless, until death steps in. But David began to do what the other kings around him did. He began to multiply wives and concubines. A concubine is sort of like a legal mistress. And so he had eight wives at least and ten mistresses, concubines. Eighteen women at his disposal. And it wasn't enough. You see, it's a heart issue. It's a heart issue. There's this tendency to think, especially with, with sexual sin, that, that it's sort of like an appetite. If I feed it, it'll go away. No, it's like a fire. The more you feed it, the deeper it burns. I remember having a conversation. You know, it's a privilege of mine to have sit down with couples who are thinking about marriage, and we talk about marriage and some of those kinds of things. And this one young man, I mean, he really had a heart for the things of the Lord, wanted, wanted his uh, marriage to represent Christ. And we were just, I was just having a conversation with him and challenging him, you know, that after, you know, you got to watch yourself, and especially these, these, these days of, uh, of when, when you've committed yourself, they're, they're challenging days, uh, you know, to compromise in areas that you ought not to compromise when you're engaged, those kinds of things. And, but once you're married, don't let down your guard. And he looked at me kind of weird. He said, we thought that, you know, once I get married, I'm not going to have any other problem. I said, remember David. Remember David. It's a heart issue. Let me kind of get a little sp- more specific, especially to the young men. This idea that somehow I can get involved in pornography before I'm married, and then when I get married, it's all going to kind of go away. No, it doesn't. In fact, it'll ruin you. In fact, it's interesting to read. There are those of the secular who don't even believe the Bible at all, saying that this is destroying marriages because the fantasy never lives up to the reality. Or let me back that around. The reality never lives up to the fantasy. And so we need to watch. We need to set a guard because it's a heart, it's a heart issue. And so I challenge those of you who are contemplating marriage, walk purely before God. Those of you who are married, keep that spark alive. And I know, I know it gets hard when you're raising kids and you're running all over the place. And then, you know, maybe even afterwards it gets even a little more difficult. I mean, it doesn't get easy. We need to keep that romantic spark alive so that we aren't looking for something out there. There's a song, perhaps some of you remember it, Pina Colada song. It's not a scriptural, biblical song whatsoever. We won't be singing it together. Humphrey Holmes, is that right? Anyway, the, 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 the story goes in the song... That is a husband and wife, and they're in bed, and she's gone to sleep, and he's looking down through the personal wanted column of, of the paper, and it comes across an advertisement for, you know, someone who's looking for some excitement and some fun. And so he said, yeah, I, I, hate, I hate to do this against my lady, but, you know, it, I'm just, we're stuck. And so he fills out a response to that, puts it in the paper, and says, I'll meet you at O'Malley's, which is a bar, and we'll meet there, and we'll... We'll, we'll kind of see where this thing goes. And so he gets at O'Malley's early. And uh, he's sitting there and he said, all of a sudden he sees this woman come through. And I realized it was 
my own lovely lady. She had written the ad and he was responding because they had come to a point in time where the spark was dead. And so I challenge us to keep that, to keep that burning because adultery is devastating. I've had friends, and maybe you have too, who have gotten involved in adultery that's destroyed their homes. Now some, by God's grace and through a lot of hard work, have been able to restore that. But sometimes there are lines that are crossed that can't be uncrossed. There are bells that are rung that can't be unrung. God forgives, and I'm grateful for that, because none of us in this room are here without our own sins before God. But it's absolutely devastating. You see, sin is fun for a season. It is fun. If it wouldn't, we wouldn't do it. Somebody put it this way in in David's life, and we'll see it next chapter. There was too much of God to enjoy sin in David's life and too much of sin to enjoy God. He was caught into that place where, you know, I'm where I don't want to be. God seems vacant and far from me. But I sure don't enjoy what I just did. It was something for a moment. It was during a time of success. Those are dangerous times. He's not being driven to on his knees because there are battles that are being fought. Everything looks good. And those are some of the most dangerous times for us as followers of Jesus. And one final thought. Our sin affects others. Innocent people. Look at Uriah. He was a follower after God. His name means the Lord is my light. It was given to him by Hittite parents. He's doing the right thing. He's fighting the king's battles. He honors God's ark and the representation of who God is. And yet he dies as a result of David's sin. There are homes that are torn apart because of the sin of a parent or of a child. There are those who die as in accidents from drunken drivers. They are innocent. But don't think that God is absent from those times as well. I want to leave you with some hope. (laughs) That's a pretty dark story it is because it It's a reminder to us that any of us can be there. We're going to see that David does come to a point of confession before God. I am grateful that 1 John 1, 9 is in the book that Jesus himself has said that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. None of us here are perfect. None of us, that doesn't become an excuse. We start, first of all, acknowledging that we are sinners in need of a Savior, that we want to have a restoration of what was lost back in the garden. That's why God created you, is to have a relationship with you. Sin has, has been a barrier. And so Jesus came to pay for our sins and our failures, that whosoever believes in Him will have eternal life, will have sins forgiven, and will be cleansed from our sin. 
But it also raises a question and it causes me to think in terms of what are the little areas in, in my life that I'm compromising? How about you? Are there areas? Maybe you're not. Or we're thinking, you know, that won't happen to me. I'm smarter. Yeah. And so are there areas that I need to focus on? I need a close walk with Jesus. Proverbs 4.23 Guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it flows the spring, springs of life. Guard your heart with all diligence, because out of it flows the springs. Every aspect of my life and your life flows out of what's in the heart. Let's see if we can say that together. Guard your heart. Come on, come on, come on. Guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it flows the springs of life. Let's do it again. Guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it flows the springs of life. Proverbs 4.23. Well done. You just memorized a verse. <laughs> 